0: I wonder if I asked you what you were most looking forward to, what your answer would be. I wonder if I asked you which horizon in your life guides and sets the course of your life, what your answer would be. Is this a prayer that you pray very often? Uh, It's the last prayer in the Bible. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Here's the prayer. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Are you longing for the day when you can say, in the words of Psalm 118, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Because according to Jesus, you see him coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. In the meantime, between now and when Jesus returns, do you know what to expect of life? Do you know what life is going to be like this between this moment and when Jesus returns? Do you agree that if we know how to read the signs of the times from Jesus' perspective, we will be well prepared and empowered to keep on keeping on to the end? Because I think it's true, is it not? Forewarned is forearmed. As we prepare to celebrate Jesus' first advent, the New Testament would also encourage us to focus on his second advent, which is what we'll be doing tonight and, God willing, next Sunday evening. What I want to do this evening... Um, I'd like to waggle on the contextual tea for a moment. We understand the, if we, to read Matthew 24:25 correctly and to avoid drowning in Lake Potty speculation, we need to understand the context of what Jesus was saying. So the slide behind me is a bit technical. Some of you like techie stuff. The rest of you, God bless you, hang on in there, you'll be fine. Um, the context of what Jesus said in Matthew 24 25 is in the it's the last visit that Jesus makes to the temple before he goes to Calvary. And we find that in verse in chapter 21 12. He entered the temple and he leaves the temple in 23 39. And you'll notice, if you look at the verses there, he says at the beginning, when he enters the temple after Palm Sunday, as we call it, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. At the end of that discussion, he says, your house is left unto you desolate. At the beginning, it's my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. But at the end, your house is left unto you desolate. And the material in that discussion is bracketed by Psalm 118.26, which says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's spoken by the crowds on Palm Sunday, and then it's spoken, secondly, by Jesus at the end. And then we have in verses 1 through 3 those terrible pronouncements that Jesus makes that the, the not one stone will be left upon another. Look, I te- look he, he says, your house is left unto you desolate, Matthew 23, 38. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then Jesus, after leaving the temple, goes up onto Mount, the Mount of Olives and his disciples come to him and they draw attention to the splendid buildings which was Herod's temple and it was still a work in progress for restoration at this time and it was made up of massive stones which were actually coated with gold leaf. And it looks Stunning at night time in Jerusalem. And Jesus says, Do you see all these things? Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? For the disciples the destruction of the temple and Jesus' return and the end of the age were three simultaneous events in their mind, in their, the way they looked at life was once the temple is destroyed end of age that's how they're thinking at this time And so Jesus answers their questions, but he does so in reverse order. There's two questions. The first question is when will this happen, the destruction of the temple? And the second question is what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So there's a when question and a what question. Jesus reverses the answer. He answers the what question first. And he does so from Matthew 24, 4 through 34. And the primary call for God's people is perseverance. The one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Then he answers the when question second. And he does so from Matthew 24, 35 right the way through to Matthew twenty-five thirty, and the two primary applications are, you need to be ready, because you do not know when he's coming back. It could be tonight. And you need to be faithful, because it could be a long time. You don't know. Readiness and faithfulness are the marks of what it means to be ready and faithful in answer to the when question. That's why I put that quote in, who then is the faithful and wise servant? And the final statement he makes in 25, 31 through 46 is then, Judgment Day. And when the Son of Man returns, there are three things that are noted in that passage. He will sit, he will separate, and he will pass sentence. So... That's how Jesus answers the questions that the disciples ask. What I want to do this evening is look at, with you at the what question. Now he gives enough clarity in answer to the what question that we are able to read from Jesus' perspective the signs of the times in which we are living and he calls us to learn the lesson of the fig tree. So I want us to learn the lesson of the fig tree tonight. We're going to be thinking about the lesson of the fig tree. But he also, in the when question, leaves unanswered questions. And I want to, God willing, deal with the when question in a bit more detail next Sunday evening. So let's think about the what question. What is the lesson of the fig tree? And I've put the the text there from... uh, um, psalm 118 26 up there on the screen for you because that's an incredibly important psalm um, in and Jesus applies this psalm to his own return in glory. But what is the lesson of the fig tree? Look at verse 32. If you're following, have your Bibles with you, please. Matthew 24, 32. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs become tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. So that's how you read the fig tree. Twigs get tender, leaves come out, summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, and we're going to think about these things that he's spoken about, when you see all these things, you know that it is near right at the door. So the lesson of the fig tree is to see all these things from Jesus' perspective and so learn to live well and serve well until he comes. Now the lesson of the fig tree is a lesson in four parts. There's one lesson and it has four parts to it. Part one, deception, will be rampant and increasingly rampant between now and when Jesus returns so watch out that no one deceives you part two of the lesson of the fig tree is therefore this distress therefore see to it that you are not alarmed part three of the lesson of the fig tree is desertion or apostasy but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved Part four of the lesson of the fig tree is deliverance. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So it's one lesson in four parts. Are you ready? Shall we pray? Lord, please teach us the lesson of the fig tree. In Jesus' name, amen. So, part one is deception that's one of the themes that Jesus develops will be apparent and increasingly apparent in the time between him speaking this and his return verse 5 for many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many verse 11 at many false prophets will appear and deceive many people Verse 23, at that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or there he is, do not believe it, for false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Verse 25, see, I have told you in advance. So if anyone tells you, here he is out in the desert, or do not go out, or here he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. Put it another way, Jesus says the mark of the end times, and the end times began when Jesus rose from the dead, and they will continue until Jesus returns. They're the end times. We are living in the end times. Put it another way, what Jesus says the end times will be marked by antichrists, antichrists a plenty, and they will be previewing and preceding the the Antichrist, the great Antichrist. What Jesus does to interpret and apply this lesson to us is for his first hearers and for us, he delves into the past to interpret the present and point us to the future. That's his interpretive method. That's how he exegetes the Bible for us. He takes a lesson from the past to interpret the present and point us to the future. That's classic prophecy, how Old Testament prophets did it. So Jesus is speaking as a prophet here. He talks about, in Matthew 24, 15, when you see the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of by the prophet Daniel. Let the reader understand. Prophecy of Daniel in Daniel 11:31 was that a person would come and set up in the temple the abomination that causes desolation. That happened in AD, sorry, in BC between 215 and 164, under the name of a ruler, a terrible tyrannical ruler called Antiochus Epiphanes. That actually happened in history in fulfillment of the prophecy that Daniel gave. So that in their minds, these disciples would have known about what Antiochus Epiphanes did. He set himself up, he set a pagan altar up in the temple, sacrificed pigs on it and proclaimed himself to be God manifest that's what Antiochus Epiphanes actually means and that would have been in their minds literally a couple of hundred years before Jesus appeared so he's going to delve into the past and say what happened in the past is going to repeat again I want to interpret the present from what has happened in the past. And in Matthew twenty four fifteen, he talks about the, the future when you see, when you see the abomination that causes desolation. You are going to see it again, he says. You will see the abomination that causes desolation again. It's happened then, it's going to happen again. And he's talking about the Empress Titus Caesar who in AD 70 invaded Jerusalem and destroyed the temple and set himself up and declared himself to be God and ransacked and destroyed the temple. That's why they threw the stones down so they could get the gold off it. so he's he's delving into the past to interpret the present now in 1 john 1:15 1 the apostle john under the inspiration of the spirit says many antichrists have come and there were many many false prophets and many many false christs that were around at that time and that has been the steady state and all of them point towards the great final man of lawlessness the antichrist that is yet to be revealed at a future date spoken of again by the apostle paul under the inspiration of the spirit you can read about what paul teaches about this person in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verses 1 through 12 so what jesus is teaching us between my resurrection and my return The present final days, the end times, will be marked by deception. An increasing intensity of deception will be the norm. So, watch out that no one deceives you. And he's told us how to avoid it. He's told us in advance... That these things will happen, twenty four, twenty five, and he's also told us crucially how we will recognise him on his return, how we can spot the charlatan from the real Messiah, how we can distinguish between deter, how we can discern between the false Messiah and the true Messiah, and that's what he teaches us in Matthew twenty four. 26 through 31 so if anyone tells you there he is out in the desert do not go out there or here he is in the inner rooms do not believe it why for as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west so will be the coming of the son of man my return says Jesus will be unmissable it will be completely unmissable you cannot miss it for as the lightning comes from the east, is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And he talks about the prophecy of Isaiah. Immediately after this stress of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And who will see? All the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. That's how you'll know I'm back, says Jesus. Unmissable. The universe will literally implode and I will return. No mistake. So, watch out that no one deceives you. Because deception will be the norm. Part two. Part two is... On top of increasing satanic deception, there will be increasing distress. If you're using the authorised version of the New King James, it translates the word tribulation. Tribulation is the word that is used, it's translated in the NIV as distress. And that word occurs in 24.9, 24.21 and 24.29. The application for God's people in the time that we are living is, but see to it that you are not alarmed, not frightened, not troubled. And he shows us how this distress, this tribulation will appear. So we can read the signs of the times. It will appear in three ways. Number one, it will appear in international conflict. Chapter 24, 6 through 7a. You will hear of wars and rumours of wars. Nation will rise against nation. It will appear in natural disasters, earthquakes and famines in various places. Number three, it will appear supremely, I believe, in the persecution of and the martyrdom of Christians. Look at verse 9, 24-9. 24-9 says, hang on, I'll get my paperwork out. 24-9 says, then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you'll be hated by all nations because of me. And then he expands on that in verses 15 through 15, sorry, 12 through 15. So when you see standing in the holy place, the abomination got me the wrong notes. Then you see standing in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation. So there's going to be an intense time of persecution for Christians. And we are not to be alarmed because of how Jesus interprets this tribulation to us. Because he puts God's perspective on the tribulation. It it will look like and feel like God is out of control. Or God is missing in action. That's how it will feel. That's how it will look. That's how it will cause us, if we are not careful, to be alarmed, to be frightened, to be troubled. But he interprets the trouble and the tribulation and the distress, in such a way that we're not alarmed. So, when it comes to international conflict, wars and rumours of wars, what does he say? Such things must happen. Such things must happen. Wars, rumours of wars, nation rising against nation, such things must happen. Why? because they are in perfect accord with God's sovereign plan. If you want a text that proves that, the place I would suggest you look is Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 5, where where the prophet is struggling to interpret what is happening in his day and age and what God is doing about what is happening in his day and age. And God's answer in Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 5 is, look at the nations and be alarmed. Look at the nations and be amazed. I am going to do something in your days that you wouldn't believe it if you hadn't been told. What Jesus is telling us, even wars, rumours of wars, nation rising against nation which is terrible, awful, is under God's sovereign control and is being used by him to work out his purposes. So don't be alarmed. God's on the throne. God's on the throne. Look at how he interprets natural disasters, earthquakes, famines in various places. It looks like and feels like death. Look at how he interprets it. All these are the beginnings of birth pains. Jesus is saying, when you hear of these terrible natural disasters, which are terrible, and Christians should run towards the pain of other people and care and love and serve them, we'll come to that a bit later, don't think it's death don't read it as death it's birth pains this is a prelude towards me regenerating the entire cosmos you want to text the proof that romans chapter 8:22 that the whole creation has been groaning in what says paul the pains of childbirth longing for the sons of god to be revealed So interpret international conflict through the perspective of God's sovereignty. Interpret natural disasters, says Jesus, through the promise of a new heavens and a new earth. And the third area of tribulation is the persecution and martyrdom of Christians. And there's that interesting phrase that is included... Let the reader understand. Let the reader understand. Understand what? Understand that even in the persecution and execution and martyrdom of Christians, God is working his purpose out. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. In Revelation chapter 6 verse 11, where we hear the souls of those who have been put to death because of their faith, and they cry out, how long, O Lord? tells them to rest until the full number of those who were to die for their faith have been accomplished. God has chosen some of his people to pay the ultimate price of their own life for his glory, and the proclamation of the gospel. Let the reader understand. So part two of the lesson of the fig tree that Jesus is teaching us is that in these days there will be increasing distress and increasing tribulation. But see to it that you're not alarmed. Part three. On top of increasing satanic deception, on top of increasing tribulation, there will be increasing desertion or apostasy. Look at verses 9 through 13. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. And you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. The shocking reality that Jesus prepares us for is that as the persecution of Christians intensifies and it is intensifying it will literally shake down the church. when we're testing something in engineering we shake it down <laughs> to make sh- to see what's real and what will last. This is a massive shakedown for the church that's happening and it will be heartbreaking and terrible to see many will turn away from the faith. Many will turn away from the faith. And have we not, in our small way, seen, even in our day, Christians turn away from the faith? Either seduced by money, sex, or power, or where the heat comes on in the, when, when persecution arises, they literally have been sifted like chaff from the wheat, I didn't talk about this last week, but there is such a thing as the invisible and the visible church. There are those who come to church and say they love Jesus, and they sing and they pray and they read their Bibles and they make contributions and all the rest of it. And there's that terrible verse in Matthew 7 where Jesus says, Many will say to me on that day, did we not? And they've got a very impressive CV. And Jesus says, Depart from me, I never knew you. But he's also telling us here that when persecution comes, it will sort the wheat out from the chaff. Many will turn away from the faith. Let me just say something by way of sort of partial application at this point. I want you to be crystal clear you cannot lose your salvation. Once in him, in him forever, thus the eternal covenant stands. You can never, ever, ever lose your salvation. You can lose the joy of it, but you can't lose it. Because the gifts of God are eternal and without repentance. What's happening here is what Jesus alluded to in the parable of the sower. They receive the word with gladness, but when trouble or persecution comes, they fall away because they're not the real deal. 1 John 2 talks about this as well. They went out from us because they were not of us. They're false Christians. They're shaken out when persecution comes, but it gets worse than that. They not only turn away from the faith, but they will betray and hate each other. That's a terrible thing, isn't it, to consider. Having turned away from the faith, these false Christians will turn on their former family and betray and hate one another. And it gets worse. Verse 12, And because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. Jesus is saying, not every Christian will desert the faith and betray their former family, but the love of most will grow cold. I think Jesus is telling us here that while we may not desert him and betray him, there will be a tendency when the pressure is on, when there's increasing deception, when there's increasing distress, and there's increasing desertion and persecution we'll want to have a tendency to keep our heads below the parapet. parapet. And we'll we'll retreat into what I would call church museum mode. There's two ways to do church, by the way. You can do church in two ways. You can do mission mode. Mission mode is going out and telling people, come what may the gospel preaching the gospel sometimes even the cost of your own reputation your own comfort your own situation your own life that's mission mode or there's museum mode museum mode is where we gather together we close the doors and we sing all these lovely hymns and we say all these nice prayers and we shut the doors and then we go about our business like nothing's ever happened that's museum mode I do not want to be part of a church that's ever, ever in museum mode. Do you? But that's the tendency that Jesus says will be part of the end times. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. So how, according to Jesus, can you know that you are a real Christian. Because by his grace, you will stand firm with him and his people to the end. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13. All these were still living by faith when they died. They had not received the things promised. They only saw them a distance and embraced them john chapter 10 if you want a verse to read before you go to sleep tonight and say lord am i going to wake up a christian in the morning read john ten twenty eight through 29 that you are in the father's hand god has placed you in the palm of his hand and over the father's hand where you are placed jesus has placed his nail pierced hand None shall ever pluck thee from from the Father's hand. That's how you're going to get there. The one who will stand firm by sovereign grace to the end will be saved. That's part three. Now for part four. Verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to the nations and then the end will come. Part four of Jesus' lesson is that over and above increasing satanic deception and over and above increasing distress and tribulation and over and above increasing desertion and apostasy, his church will keep on in going into all the nations and preaching the unsearchable riches of Christ, come what may. So let me ask this question in the teeth of all of this rising tide of deception, distress and desertion, what sort of people does Jesus use to preach this gospel to the whole world? Is it super-Christians? Or is it normal Christians, just like me and you, who have no confidence in the flesh and by grace are, are totally joyfully dependent on Him? Ordinary Christians are grounded in His Word and by the Spirit test everything by His Word to ensure that we're not deceived. And ordinary Christians are those who by His grace embrace His exceedingly great and precious promises and therefore are partakers of the divine nature. Let me just pause on that for a moment. Do you know why God gave you exceedingly great and precious promises? Well, so you can believe them, yeah. So you can rely upon them, yeah. So you can take them to the bank and know they're going to happen, yeah. All of those things are true, but there is over and above that something else that God has designed his exceedingly great and precious promises to do. Peter says that you partake in the divine nature. What does that mean? It literally means that God has chosen that when you, by faith, which is also a gift, believe and embrace the promises, you encounter God in the promise. You literally experience communion with your Saviour. That's how He does it. That's how you know fellowship with Him. Through His exceedingly great and precious promises. I was reading recently the biography of a guy called John Patton, not the American General, a Glaswegian guy who went off. He was doing a mercy ministry in Glasgow, a very fruitful gospel ministry in Glasgow. And he went off to call to the frontline mission field of the um, cannibal nations of the South Pacific. And it literally was life on the line from the get-go. They hated John Patton. They wanted to kill John Patton. They wanted to eat John Patton. And he says, one night, I was literally fleeing for my life There was gunfire and all of these guys that wanted me dead and some of my friends were trying to hide me and I shinned up a tree. And all that night, in that tree, I have never, ever known such sweet communion with Jesus as in that moment, all that night in that tree. The promise that he made, I will never leave you or forsake you. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He said, it was like Jesus and I sat in the tree all night chatting. I experienced the divine nature of Jesus drawing near to me. That's why he gave you these promises. So normal Christians are those who are grounded in his word and test everything by his word. And therefore, we are those who embrace his exceedingly great and precious promises so that by his grace, in the rising tide of distress, we're not alarmed, because we know he's with us. And who is in his strength, we stand firm to the end. How do you stand firm to the end? Notice what he says, that because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. Your most deadly enemy, I believe, is your heart. Do not ever let your heart grow cold towards the Lord. Increasing wickedness is one of the ways your heart will grow cold towards the Lord because you won't understand what's going on because you haven't embraced His exceedingly great and precious promises. You haven't filtered and processed His word through your heart so your heart grows cold. Never, ever, ever become dissatisfied with the unfailing love of God. Psalm 118 starts with the the enduring, the good... the the goodness of God, the enduring, ever-enduring love of God. It ends with it. You need to pray. Let me urge you to pray at the the members' meeting. Lord, satisfy me in the morning with your unfailing love. You need to be saturated and overwhelmingly delighting in his unfailing love. That's how you stand firm to the end. That's how you guard your heart against growing cold. And it's those sorts of Christians that God will use in the preaching of the gospel to the whole world. Is this you? And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, how we need to learn and relearn the lesson of the fig tree so that we are not alarmed, so that we stand firm to the end, so that our hearts grow increasingly warm and hot towards you. Grant us all the privilege and the pleasure of learning and relearning the lesson of the fig tree so we are prepared for and longing for your return when we will say when the skies burst asunder blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord we pray in jesus name amen he will hold me fast for my savior loves me so he will